0: Got a plethora of papers here. Get everything spread out. Okay. Good morning. Yes, um, I am Greg, I'm not Jeff, and I'm glad of that. <laughs> yes, I'm Greg Balzer. I'm uh, a pastor here at Veritas Church. Um, filling in for Eric, um, who had took a well-deserved uh, week off as a holiday break. Um, if you don't know, some people have no- noted, um, maybe on Twitter or other locations, that this is actually the least attended Sunday out of the entire year um, at, for churches b- by tradition. So um, those of you that are here, um, you get an Arminian uh, congratulatory uh, <laughs> legalistic pat on the back. Um, and for those that, you are, that aren't here, you're relying on God's grace. Um, I, I will be talking about, about both grace and the law this morning, and so um, it will uh, wrap into our, our sermon as, as well. Um, let me start out by saying this is the third, indeed the third, in a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, um, the sermon where Jesus describes uh, through the words of the Apostle Matthew um, the answer to a very uh, timely and important question Um, What does it mean to live the Christian life? How do you or how do I live the Christian life? Um, Maybe you, like I, have have spent some time recently with family or with friends um, or with other believers, um, coming alongside these people, um, ministering to them, discipling them, encouraging other believers. Um, And maybe you, uh, like I, have have found, have struggled actually to, to find the words, the specific words to express what God has done in your life, as you come alongside somebody else and you try to tell them or encourage them, you know, don't be afraid, trust God, because look at what God has done. Um, it's difficult to find those words, and I believe um, the words that Jesus would like to have us to share with other believers or with those that aren't believers are actually um, part of this morning's uh, message on the Sermon of the Mount, specifically um, on the message of the Beatitudes. Um, if you like I have, have struggled to understand the Christian life, or, or to live the Christian life, or to describe to others how God has changed your heart, the inside of your body, the inside of your heart deep down in your soul, to make you want to live the Christian life, to make you to want to follow Christ, then um, you come to the right place because that's the theme of this morning's message from the Sermon on the Mount, and you're in the right place. Um, so these are very deep subjects. And um, for me to speak on them is going to be a difficult thing to explain them clearly. So we're going to need God's providential help. So let's go before our Lord right now in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your gracious love for us. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, that while we still saw you as the enemy of our souls, that you saw fit to reach out to many here and to open our eyes to the poverty of a life lived apart from you. Thank you that in your grace and mercy, you saw fit to make evident to us the healing, the hope, the sanctification, and the transformation that takes place through the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Grant us, we pray, the ability to understand, the ability to apply, and have our lives transformed by your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Grant us, we pray, the ability to understand, apply, and have our lives transformed by your word this morning. We thank you that um, in advance for your sanctifying work that you desire to do in our lives. We ask and pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. So, we're focusing this morning. Yeah, actually, let me make a true confession. The uh, cover of our bulletin tells us that actually we're looking at verses seven to twelve. But the more I got into this, the more I realized that unless we want to spend lunch time here, maybe going to dinner, um, I'm gonna have to scope it back a little bit. So we're specifically gonna target uh, verses seven to nine this morning, and um, basically from the beatitudes and. Because the uh, context of the Beatitudes in the context of the Sermon on the Mount are so important, I want to spend a little bit of time um, providing um, a broad strokes overview of what we're looking at. And then once we get through that, we'll look at more of the specific details. And so I'm going to start out by basically reading um, all nine Beatitudes, nine verses, um, from from Matthew 5, uh, chapter chapter 5, verses 2 to 11. Um, I'm going to provide a a brief overview of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes as a whole. And then we're going to, again, uh, focus specifically on verses 7 to 9, looking at blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, and blessed are the peacemakers. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin our study of God's Word. If you're using one of our Pew Bibles, you'll find the verses... At the bottom, I believe, of page 759, going over to page 760. And those verses, read as, those verses read as follows And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. So the context of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes as well um, read as follows. The Sermon on the Mount, in a large stroke at a high level, tells us how to live the Christian life, how to live life in this already-not-yet kingdom. Um, Typical study of the Sermon on the Mount focuses on Jesus' commands. Remember, some of Jesus' most um, uh, thought-provoking or, uh, uh, I don't know, painful commands to think of that talk about what he's calling us to, lust being the same as adultery. Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, even if you look at a woman with, with lustful intent, you've, you've, uh, you've uh, committed adultery with her already. So in Jesus' eyes, not only the, the action of adultery was a bad thing, an awful thing, a thing not to, not to pursue, but so also was the action or the activity in the heart, the lust itself. Jesus also said that hate is the same as murder. Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not murder but I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother has committed murder in that same way. That's my paraphrase, right? So in the same way, basically, not just was murder itself a sin itself, but so also was the thing that leads to that sin itself, the hatred itself in your heart. Jesus called the, his disciples, his followers, to a greater righteousness, to a greater righteousness than the Pharisees. This greater righteousness was greater because it wasn't just an external righteousness it was an internal and an external righteousness as well if you remember jesus used the example of whitewashed sepulchers or whitewashed tombs and he called the pharisees and calling them out on that and saying basically you are just like whitewashed sepulchers whitewashed tombs but full you are inside you're full of dead man's bones Jesus was calling out these Pharisees because rather than having an integrity of heart, mind, and action and deed, they had an external righteousness only. What Jesus was calling the Pharisees to was what I would uh, consider or draw an equivalent to a total gut remodel, right? Not just whitewash the outside of the tomb and make it look pretty, but do something like we see for these historic buildings downtown, where you've got the old building, you've got got the flesh, you've got the body, you've got your face and your body. But what needs to happen is that everything inside needs to be carved out and removed and replaced with God himself, to be replaced with holiness and righteousness on the inside while the outside still appears to be the same, pinned in place. The Beatitudes tell us a number of things. The Beatitudes are critical to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are critical to understanding this greater righteousness that calls us to. They, this is critical because the Beatitudes focus on the essence or the, or the heart of the matter, the need to have a changed heart itself that then reflects itself in changed exterior activities and behaviors. There's nine Beatitudes in total. We, I just read through all of them. Uh, the, the key thing about thinking about the, the Beatitudes is that they're very carefully structured. There are a lot of Beatitudes. It's easy to read them all and kind of go, well, Jesus is calling us to do all these specific things, and I need to try to remember them all. However, if you look at them more carefully, and more closely, and we actually will do that in just a moment here, you'll realize that they're actually foundational. They're progressive. That one Beatitude builds upon the next, and you can't proceed to second base until you've actually run past first base. You can't go to third base until you've gone past second. I would suggest as well, and, and might put this in the back of your mind to think, that I would suggest that the Beatitudes are also in some ways chronological. In, in some ways, as as um, you look at the Beatitudes, and as I've shared with others in trying to encourage them on in a walk with the Lord, and to try to look at what God is doing in their lives, when I look at the Beatitudes myself, maybe this is just me, I see a, a chronological pattern to them. The The Earlier beatitudes in my mind and in my experience seem to map and, and link to the earlier days of my Christian walk. And then as as the beatitudes go on, you see they get harder and more difficult to accomplish and and to walk within. And, and I was just as we walk through the as you walk through the beatitudes, see if in your life they don't actually map to your experience as well, too. I'm going through a, a One of my many commentaries, um, it's kind of like a devotional book that I go through right now uh, by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and it's a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount and Dr. Jones presents a uh, graphic that kind of helps me. If I had a PowerPoint machine, I'd, I'd put it up on the wall right now but I can describe it visually and Dr. Jones draws, expresses the structure, the progressive structure of the Beatitudes in this way. Basically, if you see three, well, how about a ramp up on one side, a peak up here, and then a ramp down on the other side. On, on the ramp up on the, let's see, the, my left and your right, the ramp up on the left side, we have the first three Beatitudes. The first Beatitude being, uh, being poor in spirit. The second Beatitude being mourning. The third Beatitude being meekness. So we've got po- poverty of spirit, Mourning, meekness, and at the top, at the pinnacle, we have the hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then from that side, you've got three steps down, mercifulness, purity of heart, and peacemakers. So think of this pyramid with hunger and thirst at the top. On this left side, the beatitudes of poverty of spirit, mourning, mourning and repentance, and meekness... Those could all be classified or categorized or as looked at or grouped together as or thought of, put all together in a basket of being an awareness of our need. Jesus basically starts off by highlighting our poverty of spirit. How short we fall of what God has called us to. How short we fall of the righteousness that, that God has called us to. As we are made aware of our poverty of spirit, we're utterly abased. And the more we look at God and, and the more we look at ourselves the more we look at the gap between the two, the more we're aware of how short we fall and God's greatness and, and our poverty and our need for something else more than ourselves. That poverty of spirit, that, that awareness of our poverty of spirit, that leads us to mourning. As we see who we are and we see who God is, it's only natural to mourn. It's only natural to um take the pride that normally keeps us from approaching God, that causes us to think, oh no, you know what, I'm self-sufficient, I've got it made, I don't need God, as we are made more aware of our deep need by God's insight into the depths of our soul, and the depths of our heart, the more then we are uh, forced, pushed, encouraged, or tend to truly seek God and his righteousness. Out of all of that, the third step in, in need is this idea of meekness. Meekness is, I could probably describe it as a brokenness, a pride, absent, humble, true view of oneself. No longer do we have the trappings of self-sufficiency, the trappings of self-righteousness, but that's the proud person, the proud man or the proud woman, doesn't get upset over denied rights. The meek person, the person that's been abased by God, realizes that he... She, you, or I, we have no rights at all. The truly meek person doesn't worry about rights. The truly meek person is amazed that God or that our fellow man or woman, neighbor, friend would think of us in any kind of positive way at all. That is the totally meek person. This meek person is mild, gentle, and lowly of spirit. So those first three Beatitudes, poverty of spirit, mourning, and meekness, all bring clearly home, all bring home clearly to our heart, to our minds, our awareness of our need of God. They're all God's ways of driving home our utter depravity and our utter need. The fourth beatitude, the one at the peak, the sixth verse, blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's God providing the solution to this poverty, that solution being his righteousness. Taking us through this abased desert of, of lack of spiritual righteousness, God then provides, presents his righteousness in the fourth beatitude in verse 6, where basically God shows us his righteousness that we all need. So those, we've got the steps up, showing our need. We've got the peak, God basically revealing to um, his, his disciples, his saints, the hunger and thirst that we all have for his righteousness and satisfying that. And then out of that, we then see the, the next Beatitudes talking about God's provision. God talking about uh, those that are merciful and pure in heart and those that are peacemakers. And these are the verses we're going to be looking at this morning. The verses that focus on God's provision, God's answer, God's provision in light of our utter need. These Beatitudes remind us of several things regarding our Christianity. They remind us that the Christian is, if at all, anything. The Christian is a new creation. The Christian is born from above. The Christian is a child of God. The Christian is more, much more, much, much more than a moral lawkeeper. The Christian, those of you that have been born from above, has been given a new heart. Our outward actions, what we do, what we say, how we act, our attitude, these are direct result of the change that God has made, God has provided, God has provoked in our hearts by the previous Beatitudes. This humility that we have had, the humility we've actually been introduced to by God, generates a changed heart. The final two Beatitudes, um, verses 10 to 12, we'll not be looking at today, focus on the blessing of persecution. how does that work right? The blessing of persecution it's difficult. that's all you're going to need a, a whole Sunday for it, maybe a whole week, right? Um, but in those in those verses verses 10 to twelve, uh, the, bos- the gospels tell us basically how those changed by God's spirit, those that have had their hearts changed and their external actions changed, actually have friction with the world itself due to the attitude and the spirit of the world and those are the verses we'll cover the next time I preach sometime in 2020 so that's a lot of that's a lot of like doctrine right a lot of words and I'd like to uh, present it another way perhaps a summary of the the ramp up based on our acknowledging and recognizing our need and how god draws us to that Um, with an example from the Apostle Peter, and I introduced this the last time we spoke, but I think it really drives home the the heart issue in another way of of what God is teaching us in the Beatitudes. In Matthew 26, uh, verses 31 to 35, Jesus shares a prediction to Peter, if you remember, and Jesus said to to all of his disciples, right? Right? You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus told Peter, truly, truly, I say to you this very night before the rooster crows, you will, not, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples, they said the same thing as well. So Peter, in a very proud and arrogant, and and probably totally felt like he was justified in this, professed his undying faith to Christ and that he would die for Jesus no matter what happened. And then we see later in Matthew 26, verses 69 to 74, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also are with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This was the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, You, too, are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to evoke a curse on them and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, of course, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Let's think about this for a moment. Peter wept bitterly after breaking his adamant vow to Jesus. Have you ever wept bitterly after breaking a promise made to God? I know I have. Peter also likely wept over broken personal expectations. Peter had an impression, a vision, an understanding of who he really was as a Christian. And when he saw who he really was, he wept bitterly. Have you ever wept bitterly after letting God or somebody else down after an adamant vow? I know I have. Peter also likely wept bitterly after seeing the depravity of his heart apart from Christ. Have you ever been brought to the point of mourning the depravity of your own heart? Based on all this, can you see how God's revelation of who we are, our true spiritual poverty, causes us to hunger, causes us to thirst after his righteousness? With all that in mind, now let's finally look in detail at Matthew chapter 5, verses seven to 11, where we see the continuation of this story, looking at God's provision in a bit more detail, looking specifically at blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, and blessed are the peacemakers. In chapter five, verse seven, we read, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What, What is mercy? Mercy is best defined at least in the biblical dictionary, as aid rendered to someone who is miserable or needy, especially somebody who is either in debt or without claim to favorable treatment. I would offer up or suggest that mercy is the opposite of a vindictive spirit. Mercy often involves setting aside your rights, extending (laughs) compassion to somebody who has sinned against you, who has trespassed against you, somebody who has Somebody against whom you have perfect rights to exercise the law against them. But out of mercy, you choose not to extend those rights. You, choose, you extend undue kindness to your enemies, to this person who has transgressed you in their time of distress. Where does this mercy come from? Again, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is the natural fruit of a Christian heart to whom God has revealed your poverty of spirit. The merciful are those that that understand the poverty of spirit, that realize that we have nothing in ourselves, and that's the root source of this mercy. It's only when God grants us this view of ourselves, this view of ourselves, right, that we have the right view of others. It's only when we've seen the objective poverty of our own spirit that we realize that we are totally reliant upon God to grant us his mercy out of our abject poverty we realize God's necessary gracious riches okay but first where does mercy not come from did any of you pick up this in the beatitude blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy If you think about that a bit you might think that that actually implies that mercy is meritorious Ah, 25-cent word. What does that mean, Greg? That basically, so you could, be, you could actually interpret uh, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy as somehow saying in some way that basically as I, re- as I extend mercy to others, as I extend mercy to somebody who's actually t- transgressed to me, that therefore God is obligated to grant me mercy into my account, right? Because these two bank accounts going up. If I'm good to this person, I walk a little old lady across the street, I help the guy in the wheelchair get through the crosswalk, then God's going to grant me mercy, right? That's what it says right here. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Does God grant mercy in, in uh, proportion with our mercy granted to others? Uh, the grace of God tells us no. I found the best description of this that I f- read was a, parap- well, a quote by uh, Michael Williams from the... Uh, New International Version uh, Commentary. And uh, I've paraphrased that here. See if you can grasp onto this. Uh, it's something that I can't explain coherently. So let me, let me see if uh, Michael Williams can explain it a bit more clearly. We can no more earn mercy from God as repayment for extending mercy to others than we can receive mercy from God unless we first repent. We cannot honestly claim to have repented of our own sins if we don't show mercy towards the sins of others. Nothing moves us more to forgive than the wonderful knowledge that we ourselves have been truly forgiven. Nothing indicates more clearly that we have been forgiven than our own readiness to forgive. Okay, conversely, on the other side, maybe this would help. The self-righteous rulers of Jesus' days, the Pharisees, they could not extend mercy to others. Remember how how hard and cruel they were? They could not extend mercy because they were so self-satisfied with their own deeds. They had a self-righteousness. They had an attitude. They had pride. They had an understanding of themselves. Uh, What do we call that in school? They give all the kids uh, self-confidence, right? That training, Basically, the Pharisees are tripped up by their own pride and self-righteousness. And as a result of that, we're unable to humbly go before God to seek mercy. And therefore, we're also unable to extend mercy unto others. So, no, mercy is not meritorious. Yes, mercy basically is God's free gift to us. And God grants us more mercy the more we understand our need of mercy itself. Mercy and the understanding of mercy leads us, it's foundational to the next beatitude, the pure in heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 reads, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who are the pure in heart? Blessed are the pure in heart naturally arises out of those that mourn. God's provision of a pure heart is rooted in God's revelation to his children in the depravity of our heart apart from God. When we see who we are apart from God, this reality makes us mourn. Like the Apostle Peter, we mourn and weep over our self deception and pride. Like the Apostle Peter, we realize that our most emphatic vows, our most sincere promises, are empty shells. So when you or I are faced with the depravity of our hearts, we have two options, right? We could either deny our sin. We could go, ah, well, that really, that's not me. You know, I didn't get much sleep that night. I was hungry. I was hangry. Uh, you know, that's, that's not really who I was. We can, we can deny it. We can stuff it. We can stuff down that insight into who we really are. Or we can acknowledge before God our sinful heart, repent of our sinful self-righteousness, and turn towards god what's the root of what's the root of the problem what's the root of the solution that we're looking for here well blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god the importance is the heart the solution that we need what we need is not more teaching what we need is not to try harder to have checklists or sticky pads on our dashboards or on our bathroom mirrors. We need something more significant. We don't need reformation. We need transformation. We need transformation by God's spirit. The solution that we need, that you need and that I need, is nothing more than a new heart. Being born again, being born from above, being born of the spirit, transformed by God's spirit. Simply trying harder is not going to be enough. It's not going to cut it. We need a new life. We need to start all over again. We need to be born from above. The perfect behavior that Jesus is calling us to, that greater righteousness, that righteousness where not only do I not have adult, am I not an adulterer, I'm also not a luster. The attitude or the righteousness where I, not, where I don't murder, but I, but I don't even like hate or say a harsh word against somebody else. That, all that doing, all those good behaviors, all those good deeds, the only way to achieve this greater righteousness God is calling us to is to have a changed heart. And that changed heart, again, comes out of the Beatitudes and comes out of that brokenness and poverty of spirit. As a side note on the pure heart, um, sometimes people have classified that pure heart as being utterly righteous and holy. But there's another angle to that as well, too. And this is an Old Testament view that goes way, way back. But the pure heart is also not divided. It's singular. The pure heart is not divided like the scribes and the Pharisees where they thought one thing, but they did another. The pure heart is not divided or not split like a whitewashed tomb that's clean on the outside but full of dead man's bone. The pure heart basically the doing comes from the being. The pure heart is singular like Jesus. Jesus who was perfect, spotless, pure, entire of one piece. Jesus, in who, Jesus who not only did no sin, but neither was any guile found in his mouth. The pure heart is singular. Our doing or our deeds, our behavior is the result only of our being who God has changed us. The fruit of our heart. The pure heart is unity of heart, action, and deed. Okay, how do we attain a pure heart? Do we separate ourselves from the world? Do we buy a cabin up in the Sierras and and hold ourselves in? Do we become a monk? No. All these efforts at self-cleansing, at at, uh, exercising our faith, strengthening our faith, doing weight training with our scriptures, right? Those are all doomed to failure. Only God, only God by His Spirit can give us this clean heart. The good news, the good news for you and the good news for me, is that that pure heart is actually not just our desire, it's God's desire. It's God's desire for His child. And every child of God can can with confidence approach God and realize that that is what God is desiring to do in our hearts. God does this by working both to do and to will, of his good pleasure. As the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1, chapter 1, verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is good news. God is at work in our hearts, conforming our hearts to his image by his Holy Spirit. That's his will. That's his desire. Of course, but it's not only his work we have a part to do as well too. James says in his epistle, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinners, and purify you hearts, you double-minded. We're confident that God is at work within us, but let us also remember that we need to work and purify ourselves in the same way that he is pure. This purity of heart, this Second beatitude we're looking at this morning brings us to our next beatitude. The final beatitude we're looking at, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers are exhibited or exhibit one unique characteristic, and that's a true and pure heart, sincerity. Any person that seeks to bring others to peace, to reconcile others, has to have a transparent, sincere, pure heart. And that's what we're going to see here in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers. Verse 9 reads, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, the, the peacemaker heart is based upon the earlier Beatitudes, specifically meekness. The meek look to God for their deliverance, and so in the same way, peacemakers look to God for only that deliverance that he can bring. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Only a child of God, and a child of God specifically, will look for that deliverance. Something different about this beatitude, I don't know if you picked up on it, right? This one says, blessed are the peacemakers. I don't have the entire list out. The, entire list. Ah. the other beatitudes, talk about nature, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. They're all talking about characteristics and qualities. This is kind of like a job description, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. It doesn't say blessed are the peaceful, right? It says blessed are the peacemakers. This is calling us to action, It's calling us to do something. This beatitude is calling us to do something specifically to make peace. Who are these peacemakers? Those that are poor in spirit, those that mourn their sinful state, but most of all, those that are meek. The meek that will inherit the earth, the meek whose kingdom is not of this world, the meek who know that they have nothing in themselves to boast. These peacemakers are like the man depicted by Paul in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Christ didn't equate his equality with God, right? That's the point. Christ didn't demand anything from God. He simply humbly submitted to the Father, and peacemakers act in the same way, submitting themselves to their Father. True peacemakers, Christian peacemakers... You and I know that neither idealism, right, high ideals, nor moralism, nor platitudes, nor slogans, nor moralistic teaching can bring about true peace, true lasting peace. Peacemakers, Christian peacemakers know that none of these approaches bring about lasting peace because why? They're dealing with the symptom, not with the root cause. The root cause of all of our problems is the heart. Matthew 15, 15, 19 reads, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Blessed are the peacemakers reminds us of that central theme of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Good behavior is not enough. What we need is a changed heart. We need a singular heart. We need a heart uh, that brings actions, heart and actions that are actually a one piece of cloth, basically. The Christian, the peacemaker, you and I know that true peace can only come through the gospel. It's the Christian, it's the child of God. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers, shall I be called sons of God, right? It's the peacemaker, it's a child of God that knows the depravity of our own heart, that's seen the poverty of our spirit, and that knows the gift of God's righteousness given to us, his children. Okay. There's a couple of. No. Let's go here. Try hard hard as we might to bring about reconciliation. Try as hard as we we might to make peace with people. Of course, some people are going to refuse to live at peace with us, right? Not all attempts at reconciliation will be made. Because some will reject Christ, because some are repulsed by the gospel rather than, than drawn by it, we can't expect to live peacefully with everybody we can't be a peacemaker with every single person out there. But peacemakers that reflect Christ, that experience, the bless, that experience persecution, will actually experience the blessing of persecution, and that we'll look at next time in 2020. So what can we learn from all this? What's our takeaway message? If I wanted to distill all this down into like four or five bullet points, maybe six, what would they be? What are the reminders? We cannot be who Christ has called us to be through our own efforts. This shouldn't be rocket science, right? We're not going to become a Christian by following the rules more closely. We're not going to become a Christian by trying harder. We're not going to become a Christian through stronger vows. Doing comes from being. Actions come from a changed heart. External deeds and actions naturally arise from our heart motives. Apart from Christ's redeeming work, our hearts are desperately wicked and unredeemed. It's only through God's work, through his Holy Spirit in our hearts, that we can be redeemed, that we can be made whole, that we can have holy and righteous deeds that reflect our righteous hearts. The Beatitudes show us anything. If the Beatitudes show us anything, they show us one thing: our desperate need for God, the deceitfulness of our own heart, and our need for His provision, for His righteousness. We need not more moral teaching, not more, not better discipline, not more moral platitudes. We need salvation. We need sanctification. We need to be saved. We need to confess and repent our sins before God, ask for forgiveness, ask God to reveal the folly of our pride, and to ask God to give us a pure and righteous heart. The good news for all of us, the good news is that sanctification, salvation, and righteous deeds are God's desire for his children. The Sermon on the Mount describes how God's kingdom of heaven children act, And that's his will for you and me. Christian, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Look not, look not to your own works of righteousness, but faithfully ask Christ to change your heart and to change your deeds through the working of his Holy Spirit. Amen.